Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. What was the Anglo-American Convention of 1818? I've mentioned it in previous episodes, and I've made claims about what it is and what its effects have been. But is it accurate information? The convention was an agreement, or treaty. Quote, The treaty name is variously cited as Convention Respecting Fisheries, Boundary, and the Restoration of Slaves. Convention of Commerce, Fisheries, Boundary, and the Restoration of Slaves. And Convention of Commerce Between His Majesty and the United States of America. End quote. It is also known as the London Convention and as the Treaty of 1818. Article 2 of the treaty set a boundary between the United States and British North America along the 49th parallel of latitude from the Lake of the Woods to the Rocky Mountains. Wikipedia describes the treaty as bilateral. This is an important point because what it is saying is that the treaty was not multilateral. By this I mean that the indigenous people who would have been living along or had their traditional territory spanning the 49th parallel of latitude were not included in the Treaty of 1818 or the decision to make that line an international border. That's what makes it Anglo-American. So who were the Anglos and who were the Americans who signed this important treaty? Wikipedia states the following, quote, The treaty was negotiated for the U.S. by Albert Gallatin, ambassador to France, and Richard Rush, minister to the U.K., and for the U.K. by Frederick John Robinson, treasurer of the Royal Navy and member of the Privy Council, and Henry Goulburn, an undersecretary of state, end quote. Albert Gallatin was America's Secretary for the Treasury. He was born in Geneva and spoke French as a first language. After the American Revolution, he immigrated from Switzerland to Pennsylvania. In 1795, he was elected to the House of Representatives. He helped establish the House Ways and Means Committee. Quote, The committee has jurisdiction over all taxation, tariffs, and other revenue-raising measures, as well as a number of other programs including Social Security, Unemployment Benefits, Medicare, the Enforcement of Child Support Laws, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, Foster Care, and Adoption Programs. End quote. Albert Gallatin was also involved in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, and he helped negotiate the Rush-Bagot Treaty in 1817, which was a precursor to the Treaty of 1818. Richard Rush was born in Philadelphia in 1780. During the War of 1812, he was one of the President's advisors. In 1814, Rush became Attorney General. He also acted as Secretary of State, during which time he concluded the Rush-Bagot Treaty of 1817. This treaty limited naval armaments on the Great Lakes, including Lake Champlain. Richard Rush was appointed as Minister to Britain in 1817. The next year, he signed the Treaty of 1818. It is his name that is lent to the Rush-Bagot Treaty. The Rush-Bagot Treaty was a disarmament agreement between the United States and Great Britain along the so-called Canadian border. 
I say so-called because the nation of Canada didn't exist yet in 1817. Confederation wouldn't occur for another half a century. This treaty and others like it between Britain and the United States would lay the foundation for the future country of Canada. Quote, the treaty provided for a large demilitarization of lakes along the international boundary where many British naval arrangements and forts remained. The treaty stipulated that the United States and British North America could each maintain one military vessel, no more than 100 tons burden, as well as one cannon, no more than 18 pounds, on Lake Ontario and Lake Champlain. The remaining Great Lakes permitted the United States and British North America to keep two military vessels of like burden on the waters armed with like force. The treaty and the separate Treaty of 1818 laid the basis for a demilitarized boundary between the U.S. and British North America. End quote. The international boundary exists because of this treaty and its related agreements such as the Treaty of 1818, the Oregon Treaty of 1846, as well as the Treaty of Washington of 1871. Although the Rush-Bagot Treaty was created in 1817, Canada, as a country, didn't confirm it until 50 years later in 1867. The Bagot in the Rush-Bagot Treaty is the last name of Charles Bagot, a British ambassador to the United States. Years later, in 1841, Charles Bagot would be appointed as Governor-General of the newly created province of Canada. Quote, In 1842, Bagot initiated a major review of government policies and expenditures related to Indigenous peoples in Canada East and Canada West appointing Rawson W. Rawson, John Davidson, and William Hepburn as report commissioners. Completed in 1844, the final report, titled the Report on the Affairs of the Indians in Canada, included a call for the introduction of industrial schools to address the noted failure of day schools to effectively keep Indigenous children from the influence of their parents and is regarded as the foundational document in the rationale for establishing the Canadian Indian residential school system. End quote. In other words, the colonizers wanted indigenous children forced into indoctrination facilities years before many of Canada's so called treaties were signed by indigenous chiefs. For reference, recall that the Robinson Huron and Superior Treaties were signed in 1850, and all of Canada's numbered treaties were signed after 1871. Indigenous Peoples Treaties north of the Medicine Line, also known as the International Boundary, signed before Confederation in 1867, were agreements between the First Nations and Britain. Frederick John Robinson was another one of the negotiators for the Treaty of 1818, made between Britain and the United States. At the time, Robinson was Britain's President of the Board of Trade, as well as Treasurer for the Royal Navy. I don't know if he spent any part of his life actually in North America, although his decisions would eventually affect the lives of millions of indigenous people and scores of cultures across Turtle Island. The last of the four men who negotiated the Treaty of 1818 was Henry Goulburn. He was born and lived in England. 
he inherited a Jamaican sugar plantation that used over 200 slaves for labor. The time he spent outside of England is negligible, if any at all. Around the time of the signing of the Treaty of 1818, Goulburn was the Undersecretary of State for War and the Colonies. His department was responsible for British officialdom in colonies other than India and began in 1768 to deal with British colonies in North America. Who were the indigenous peoples who lived upon the land that would be made into the international border, also known as the Medicine Line? One example, the Akwesasne Mohawk Nation, straddles the international border between Canada and America, as well as a provincial border between Quebec and Ontario. Quote, Some parts of the Canadian side of Akwesasne are surrounded by the St. Lawrence River. The only way to get from one part of Akwesasne to another, or to elsewhere in Canada, is to go into the United States and then to re-enter Canada. This presents ongoing challenges for many Akwesasne residents who are required to cross the border for daily activities such as buying groceries and going to work. Furthermore, when members of the Mohawks of Akwesasne travel to the part of Akwesasne located in Ontario, they must cross the Canada-US border, pass their destination, and stop at the Canada Border Services Agency point of entry in Cornwall to report. Following this process, they must backtrack to arrive at their destination. End quote. Part of the argument that is used to validate the border crossing rights is the Jay Treaty of 1794. Unfortunately, the Jay Treaty isn't recognized by either the Canadian or American governments. Quote, it is important to note that, for two reasons, the Jay Treaty has no practical application in Canada today. First, the Jay Treaty was abrogated by the War of 1812 between Great Britain and the United States. Second, the treaty has not been implemented or sanctioned by legislation in Canada. This interpretation, which has been upheld several times by Canadian courts. End quote. It's an example of the stripping of Indigenous rights without the involvement of Indigenous people. Furthermore, quote, the best way to illustrate the particular situation of Akwesasne is to compare it with that of non-Indigenous Canadians. For most non-Indigenous Canadians, border crossing is infrequent. In the case of members of the Akwesasne First Nation, it could be five to six times per week. Non-Indigenous Canadians, for the most part, are not required to leave Canada to travel to another part of their home community for work, school or social events on a regular basis. They are also, for the most part, not required to pass through ports of entry and tolls should they wish to purchase food for supper. In the case of residents of the Sny and St. Regis districts of the Aquasasne Reserve, however, grocery purchases can involve food inspections by the U.S. border agents. End quote. Indigenous rights are human rights. On the American side of the medicine line, there are six federally recognized tribes that straddle the border. Around Lake Superior, the Ojibwe are separated by the international border at Sault Ste. Marie and in northwestern Ontario near Grand Portage and near Fort Francis. In fact, the Northwest Angle exists in the Lake of the Woods region, 
It was at this point that the surveyors went due west instead of going around marshes. Chief Shingwok signed treaties for the Ojibwe on both sides of the medicine line. In the prairie region, the Blackfoot Confederacy spans the international border. Quote, The traditional territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy has been described as roughly the southern half of Alberta and Saskatchewan and the northern portion of Montana. In the west, the Confederacy was bounded by the Rocky Mountains and its eastern limits stretched past the great sand hills of eastern Saskatchewan. Their hunting area included the rich bison ranges of southern Alberta and northern Montana. In the 2016 census, 22,490 people identified as having Blackfoot ancestry. End quote. Along the west coast, between Washington State and British Columbia, are Puget Sound and the Juan de Fuca Strait. The cities of Victoria, Vancouver, Seattle, and Olympia now exist on the shores of these waterways. But, before European contact, there were First Nations such as the Coast Salish who lived in those areas. They too were split apart by the international border, and like the Mohawk, the Ojibwe, and the Blackfoot Confederacy, they were not included in the decision to be balkanized. The definition of balkanization is, quote, to break up a region, a group, etc., into smaller and often hostile units, end quote. This, ultimately, was the purpose of the Anglo-American Convention of 1818. It was an agreement to break up the First Nations into smaller units. The hostility has been documented in subsequent conflicts, such as Black Hawk's War, the Dakota War, Pontiac's Rebellion, the Northwest Rebellion, and the decades-long continental genocidal campaign known to history as the Indian Wars. Try to guess what I think about border security and immigration. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.